smart politics for stupid times. Welcome to the Unprecedented Podcast with John Aravosis and Cliff Schechter. Welcome back, everybody. Tuesday, June 9th. I actually have to check the calendar. Uh, John Aravosis here with Cliff Schechter, and we are hey happy. Hey, guys. And we are happy to have uh, David Frum with us again. Uh, David is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He is also the author of the new book, Trump Pop. Trump, you know, I knew I was going to, I saw somebody else on TV having a hard time interviewing David, and I was Trump, like, this is, yeah. uh, well, I did it the Trumpocracy. That's how you do okay. it. Trumpocracy. Okay. Oh, Can I break the fourth wall and go get a copy of the book uh, and put it on, and put it in sure. front of Yes, because sure. we just screwed it up. So you I just screwed to. it up. So, so Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. And actually, it doesn't hurt to have it because people can see what it's called. Um, it's true. We, we are doing a visual medium now. We might as well use that. Like the magic video. But, you know, while we're waiting for David to come back, Cliff, we were going to do a quick ad anyway and then start with David. Uh, Cliff, do, give us our quick ad from Plexiderm. All right. Uh, so, folks, Zoom meetings with coworkers and clients are great. So are podcasts, for that matter, via Zoom. Until um, you notice that bags under your eyes and deep wrinkles, uh, that's just me, not John, of course. Let me tell you about, uh, oh God, let me tell you, these cameras catch everything, and they do. Now imagine they're gone. No risky, expensive surgery, just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags, all the com- from the comfort of your home. Plexiderm is the solution to yeah, Zoom meeting little. eyes. I think that's a term I'm going to I have Zoom meetings. You know, it was good marketing they came up with that, because it is true, though. Like, you get on Zoom, and you're like, oh, God, it's 10 you in really the morning. You really do. You look much more awful than you ever thought you would. So this is actually a good product for you. I know I tried it, and, and I look like me, just 10 years younger. Uh, I will be trying it, folks. You can bet your ass that. I'm blown away by the results. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be great in Zoom meetings and FaceTiming with your friends. They'll be surprised when they see you this summer. That was an exclamation point. The best part is Plexiderm goes on clear and lasts for hours, so nobody will know that you're using it unless you tell them. Uh, go try, go to tryplexiderm.com and use the code VOICES for half off a full-size bottle of Plexiderm, plus an additional $10 off. So that's half plus 10. That's half off plus an extra $10 off. You can go to tryplexiderm.com or call 800-685-1292 and mention the code again, VOICES. That's Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. So again, you either go to Plexiderm.com, you use the code VOICES, or you call 800-685-1292. Also use the code VOICES. You'll get half off plus $10. Um, and that's triplexiderm, tri, triplexiderm.com. <laughs> Cliff did know how to read at oh. one point in his life, hey. folks. So we are back with David from, I was going to say David Trump. That would have been kind of weird. Uh, the author of Trumpocalypse, Restoring America's Democracy. By the way, I was watching something on TV or something in the news the other day, and a from has something to do with the Orthodox Jews? Yes. Uh, in, in Yiddish uh, and Hebrew, mostly Yiddish, from means to be super pious in the same way that um, the German word from uh, means means pious. Huh. Although I, I've always had a feeling that in my family um, that the name Froom was applied to us because we we're probably the village drunkards, and it was applied sort of. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> oh, yeah, the Froom. Look at the Frooms again. Yes, but uh, yes. So fru- uh, so I I get reproach for this for because I'm I'm not very because fruit. you're not very pious. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, but uh, that, that, that seems, the best of us, David. I was going to say that seems to be a theme in your life, though. So getting back to that, no. So there have been a, there have been some articles and people complaining, and I'm not quite sure why, but they've been freaking out that the never Trumpers are all going to get Biden cabinet appointees or some appointments or something. Yeah, I'm holding out for a trade representative, actually. Um, but uh, because that's, where you can, that's where you can really get the money. Exactly. <laughs> no, the whole thing it is. <laughs> I think that when people say things like that, it's just to tell because at yeah. the moment um, there's a French saying: "Who accuses others, um, you know, who, uh, who accuses others reveals himself." Um, and I, I think there's like, uh, but my favorite of this is um, I'm t I'm often told that I do or say things uh, because I want to go to cocktail parties. And well, you know me a lot. I, mean, I hate going out. Like. <laughs> <laughs> like, sorry, the cocktail party is the punishment. Like, right. it, uh, the, the reward is never going to a cocktail party. I mean, I like having people at my house, but I hate going out. Um, right. So, uh, but, you know, the tell though is usually the people who say that desperately wish that they were going to the cocktail parties. Well, Quite, also, uh, not always, but often, I would say. Also, the Georgetown cocktail party was a thing in the 50s and 60s. Right. Um, it is now one of Washington's um, less happening neighborhoods. Uh, so, you know, but no one ever says, you know, you're looking forward to going to those Logan Circle cocktail parties. Although that's, if, if, yeah. good, if, there, if there are good cocktail parties happening anywhere in Washington, it's probably, it's yeah. certainly east of 16th Street, not right. in Georgetown. We're going to hang out at Kay Graham's place again, and uh, yeah. <laughs> no, but I, but I thought it was. It is. It's like something out of like you know what's what was the the movie you know. Um, oh come on! It's like a, a more recent movie. It was about the publishing of the Washington Post. of the the Pentagon yeah, papers. Yeah, the, the Pentagon Papers. What yeah. was the movie? I can't think of the name. Where they're all going to. It, it makes you think of that era. In any case, well, go ahead. Well, it, I think actually that we could have a funny conversation about the social history of Washington because. Um, Look, Washington in the, in the 60s was legendary for its almost total absence of good restaurants. And so the reason oh, yeah. that people went, went to cocktail parties was that the only way you could cope with the food was by being hysterically drunk by 6.30 p.m. And, and, then, and then things didn't look so bad. Also, people really did drink a lot in those days in the way they right. do now. But, well, the 60s, for sure. Um, I mean, that was the, what, two or three martini lunch? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Uh, and... You know that I I think one of the things that um, you know that uh, I mean I, I it is it is so weird I mean uh, because uh, I actually had I assumed I, like many people that um, Hillary Clinton would win in 2016 and I had this whole sort of um, plan for my you know post I had a books I was going to write I had things I was going to do and and my plan for the Biden administration so I turned 60 in June. Um, our youngest child goes off to um, college. Will be empty nesters. She so thinks she does. So my plan for the Biden administration is: I, I'm taking my wife to India for three months, and then right. I'm coming back here and writing books on 19th century economic history. That's my plan for the Biden. Right. And those are really popular at the cocktail parties, I hear. <laughs> Wait a minute. Frum's coming. He's going to tell us about 19th century economic history. Everybody does. Run. <laughs> it's well, the Frum guy, the religious one with the 19th century economics. Run. Well, and just yeah, again, and yeah. I'll give people the background and then we'll move on. But basically, Byron York, who's pretty much a troll at, uh, what is he? Where is he at? Um, he's got to be at the Federalist, but he's not, <laughs> he's is he? He's at the DC. Daily Wire and, or one of those and crazy. I, I've known Byron yeah. for, for 
Yeah. I've known Byron for a long time. He has, he has, he at, at his best, he has been an excellent reporter. Yeah. Um, and, uh, he may be one of those people who's ill served by Twitter. Um, but, uh, but he has, he has, he has, he has capacities. He has, I yeah, think he's ill served by Trump in general because he yeah. seems to me to be one of those people I took seriously as someone I disagreed yes. with, but whose opinion I valued five years ago. And now yeah. I don't because it seems like he takes the Trump he line off everything. Trump. Yeah. But, but, you know, again. In any I case, the era we're in. He had written something talking about how all the never Trumpers, all you liberals are going to be surprised when all these never Trumpers are trying to get cabinet positions and go to cocktail parties. And we were like, Byron. And what David just said, that says more about you than people like David, because the never Trumpers that I know aren't in this for personal gain. Quite the contrary. You know, I mean, as I've always said, too, like I left the Republican Party. I'd be a lot richer if I stayed in the Republican Party 30 years ago. (laughs) You know, like that's not why they're doing this. Well, um, and and this is uh, look on the this is an argument that is um, said on the farther left. And in this case. Um, with a little bit more substance to it, because they're talking at least about something real. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, a review of Trumpocalypse, the, the book I just wrote in the, in the New Republic, and the reviewer was very worried. Not not that I personally was going to be international trade representative, but that <laughs> but that but that people who thought uh, but that people who thought like me were going to have a lot of influence over the Biden administration. Right. And and the answer is that's going to be true. Not because of me, but because uh, the secret of the election that is about to happen is that the, um, it's not that Democrats are going to win, move from winning 87% of the vote in the Bay Area to 97% of the vote in the Bay Area, and that's going to matter. What's going to matter in, in 2020 is the same thing that mattered in 2018, which is um, that all that they're going that the Democrats are going to do well in uh, suburban Houston. They're going to do well in suburban Atlanta. They're going to do well in suburban Charlotte. They're going to flip states, probably like North Carolina, and that the the party. Hell, where I live, is, right here in northern Kentucky, which was like Republican forever. You know, I'm in right. Cincinnati. That's how uh, we have a Democratic governor in Bashir right. is Co- in northern. Covington, Covington, yes. the Covington, where the Covington boys came from, that that was going to be like a big culture war, bloody shirt, and Covington voted Democrat in twenty eighteen. That's correct. That whole area. Uh, yep. Uh, and and Covington is like one of the as as you know is one of the most affluent areas in the greater Cincinnati metroplex, yep. um, and it's full of people with college degrees and women who uh, you know think they're paying enough property tax but cannot abide the Trump presidency. And so the party you get is a function of the people you elect. And, and when you elect a lot of people from the suburbs, which is how Democrats win, you also get people who are rather more conservative leaning than you do when the Democratic Party is electing people only from the Bay Area and you know, greater New York. Makes sense. I mean, Joe um, Manchin is not uh, you know, Jackie Spire. Right, so, so it is, I think the, the Bernie Sanders people have, um, have a true premonition that the the magnitude of the Democratic win that is shaping up in 2020 is going to end up drowning a lot of the influence they would have when it was a smaller party. And I think one of the big arguments between left and center in politics is always, would you have rather have 100% control of a losing party or a 20% voice in a winning party? And right. one of the things that separates left from center is uh, the left thinks it's more important to control the party, and the center tends to think it's more important to control the country. Well, and this is, I mean, what you're basically describing is what happened in 2018, right? Where you had a lot of 
I don't know, centrist Democrats, I'm not sure what term one wants to use, but more moderate Dems elected and very few liberal Dems. And it already started the discussion with, uh, I don't want to say the Sanders crowd, I don't want to really typecast them, but you could say the social justice, the AOC crowd or whatever. It already started a bit of a battle because it was like, well, are you really in control of the party or do you really represent the whole party when you know, 80% or 90% of the people who just got elected were, were centrists? And even more so, like you said, if we if yeah. we end up taking back the House, uh, taking back the Senate, excuse me, and the White House, a lot of the people, that, well, I guess that's the question for you and Cliff. So what you're saying is a lot of the people that get elected, if we hold on to the House and maybe even expand, if we win the Senate, that a lot of the people that are going to get elected are not going to be necessarily the left. Yeah. Can I say something quickly, uh, John, yeah. just to, yeah. and I want you to, because yeah. I want you to expand upon it, David, and, and maybe answer this too, but my feeling also is it, maybe we generalize too much, a little too much when we just say the left and the center. Because again, there's the center, absolutely. I think of someone like a more, I mentioned Joe Manchin and there's folks like that. True, true. There, there is the, there's the Bernie left. And then there's in between that, what I would call liberals, which is where I would put myself more, right? Um, I still do think David's argument overall holds weight because we're winning a lot more folks who are center left, centrist, hell, center right in suburban areas. And they need, they're going to want representation in the Democratic Party. So I do think that that overall is true. But I also want to be clear, I don't think it just separates down to, you know, Bernie right. folks and centrists. Well, and, and, and of course, it's more complicated because um, uh, Black America in some ways is left and in many other ways is Great not. Great point. Uh, it, it's it's com very complicated. But the, the Trump, I dedicated Trumpocalypse to um, the uh, the, to the you look like, you look like Mueller there looking at your cliff notes, David. Okay. Don't know your <laughs> I own just want to make sure I got, <laughs> no, I, well, I want to make sure I said it exactly right. But I dedicated kidding. it to the conservatives, Republicans, and libertarians of never Trump. And I quoted an old hymn, when all were false, I found thee true. So for the, for the first two years of the Trump presidency, uh, that the pro-Trump Republicans would jeer at those of us who are anti-Trump with a, a joke that often went something like, never Trump, you're not a political party, you're a dinner party. And then what happened What what happened in 2018? What happened in 2018 was um, George H.W. Bush's former district in Houston, near River Oaks, one of the most affluent area, I think, in Houston, uh, Texas 7. H.W. Bush won it in 66. It stayed Democrat, say, sorry, stayed Republican through Watergate continuously to 2018. That district went Democratic in 2018. Um, Eric Cantor's former district, uh, just uh, west and north of Richmond, right. that went Democratic in 2018. Newt Gingrich's former district, uh, Georgia 6, uh, went Democratic. In fact, as almost all the Atlanta suburbs did. In fact, like the, right. uh, out to the second ring highway. Um, uh, here in, in the D.C. area, uh, Virginia 10, which is got to be one of the most affluent districts in the country, if not the most affluent district in the country. And it's been Republican for 60 of the past 66 years. That went Democratic. In all of those cases, by the way, the winner was a woman, and in Georgia 6, a black woman. So there's something afoot. Um, but you know, when, when Nancy Pelosi is looking at her caucus, that she understands that Abigail Spanberger, who is the woman who won what was Eric Cantor's district. My name right? is Abigail Spanberger. I loved her. Yeah. <laughs> Form, former... <laughs> Uh, so she's a former um, uh, CIA, I believe, right? uh, CIA officer, um, you know, and she's representing the affluent suburbs of Richmond. Um, you know, she's not going to be for abolishing police forces. And uh, so if, if that's your dream of what you want the Democratic Party to be, then, you know, you're going to find a lot of these people um, 
you know, uh, frightening or, or, or menacing um, or offensive in some way. But that's not because of me and the never Repu Trump Republicans. That's because of the logic of party competition in a two-party system. Right. Right. Let's shift, let's shift over to your book then. So what is the, I don't want to say the premise of your book, but what is your book about? Okay, so um, the, the book was written on the assumption that Donald Trump was almost certainly going to lose. And it was written that way in 2018, 2019, which is when most of the work on the book was done. Uh, then I was able to revise it just before the pandemic when when my my sense that he sorry that he, uh, my sense that he was probably going to lose became a conviction that he was almost certainly going to lose, and so the question that the book tries to grapple with is, but after he loses, um, the social forces that brought him to power they're not going anywhere, uh, and um, I think we've tended to exaggerate how powerful they are. They're not forty two or forty four percent of the country, but they probably are thirty percent of the country. What do you do about that? And so. The book is, a, is, is a, a series of ideas about how first you um, try to win them back uh, to democratic politics, lowercase This feels e. like the Iraq police force that we're trying to figure out what to do with them after we fire them. Well, I, I don't want to exaggerate the analogy, but what I spent a lot of the Trump years doing was reading the history of Germany from 1945. Oh, okay, to I was just going to say just that, like, right, what do you do once we get rid of the bad guys, but the whole population is still made up of bad guys? War, but you know, it's complicated. So, um, you know, this is, I don't want to go down a tangent here, but, but, um, you know, Americans read obsessively about the history of Germany and its worst period, but how the, I've always been fascinated, how do you build a democratic culture when you didn't have one before? How, how do you deal with people who are compromised with bad activities? And I'm not making any comparison, obviously, the magnitude of what went wrong, but how do you rebuild a democratic culture? And so that's what the book is about. How do you rebuild a democratic culture? How do you address social divisions? And then how also do you be realistic? There are people who can't be won over. So how do you minimize their ability to do harm? Uh, because right now, the um, most illiberal, most repressive forces in American life have hugely disproportionate political power. How do you make their power less obtrusive, bring it back in line with their actual numbers. Right. I mean, I, and I'm, I mean, again, I'm sure you cover some of these arguments in your book, um, David, the thing that I and John can tell you go off on a tangent on the show a lot about that we've never sort of had an answer for is, you know, you can look at people say Nazi Germany. I'd like to say something even more recent. You look at Rwanda and what occurred there. Right. And we just elect, we just caught, what's his name? Kabula in, uh, in, yeah. in near Paris. He, what did he do? He, he purchased uh, talk radio and sent out, disseminated the sort of cockroaches. Hutus are the good folks. Tutsis are cockroaches, killed them versus talk radio. And I guess the thing is, part of the erosion of our democratic culture can absolutely be traced to what goes on on right-wing talk radio, Fox News, the sort of mainstreaming of othering, of the kind of rhetoric of, of I mean, essentially encouraging, almost inciting violence and, and conspiracy, let's be quite honest. How do we get back to a place where we have, a, because democracy is based on, we all, we don't want to all fight in the streets. We want to sit down and come to a compromise based upon a, you know, core set of beliefs. So you don't always get a hundred percent of what you want, but we're not shooting each other. How do we get back to that when there are people that literally in, in this 30% plus are being fed a daily diet of things that just aren't true yeah. and sort of this kind of rhetoric? Well, let, let's begin by 
being realistic about the magnitude of the problem, because one of the things that we have going for us and that the, the civil disturbances of 2020 really drive this point, point home is this is a much more peaceful country than it used to be. And one of the ways that what is happening in 2020 is not like 1968. Um, we still don't have an exact idea of how many people have been hurt or killed uh, during these commotions. And there's some dispute because sometimes a gun goes off in the vicinity of a rally and or a protest or a riot. And, and the question is that sort of like ordinary crime completely unrelated to the event or is that somehow, but altogether, even on the broadest definition, since May 25th, as we speak on, here on June the 9th, there are not more than 10 people, uh, police and non-police, uh, who have been killed uh, since the, in any remote connection. So in 1968, just in the city of Washington, there were 13 people killed. And neighborhoods were burned out that didn't recover for 30 years. The damage in Washington has been a bunch of windows broken in downtown DC, one bank badly vandalized, I took pictures of it, and then you know, a lot of graffiti on monuments. And not, no one should do any of those things. I, you know, uh, right. and especially do not put graffiti on the monuments because that's not just damage, it's also symbol a symbolic act of contempt for the institutions of the country, bad. Um, but graffiti comes off, windows can be repaired, um, and uh, smashed up ATM machines can be fit, can be replaced, and uh, that we just the left and what we have been seeing, and I'll speak especially to DC, as since the first of June that the riots have become the riots, the events have become more and more peaceful, more and more orderly. Now I've I've been in the center of these events um, probably five times for a couple of hours at a time since the first of June, and by this weekend the whole thing was looking like the Dupont Circle. Farmers market. I mean, it, it was the same people who go to the Dupont Circle. There's strollers everywhere, and puppies. Um, it was really, really orderly and um, good humored. And that's a sign. It's we're not that country. And so that what I worry about is not that. Um, and the people who consume Fox. I mean, not to be mean about this, but be mean. They're gonna. It be, before you go massacre people, you have to get lift yourself up out of the chair. And <laughs> I have a feeling that's where you were headed. Yeah. <laughs> and and th there's a certain period in life when just getting to the fridge becomes already as much excitement as. Is that why you cook. think so many of them are anti kneeling because most of them can't kneel can't. at all? <laughs> Sorry. So, go ahead. I'm being mean. Um, so. Uh, now they can still vote, and and so what I worry about is 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 the political harm. So one of the Trumpocalypse is full of ideas about how do you, without doing anything, without constitutional amendments or anything, you know, really uh, unlikely, how do you um, bring the American political system more into line with the country as it is? And then how do you address some of the social divides between rural and urban, between the more affluent and the less affluent, between men and women? Um, that have created, I think, a kind of polarized political culture, even if we have so much less violence than we did in 1968. David, we're going to take a quick break for an ad and from Cliff. And when we come back, I want to ask you a little bit about what we do about the, I don't want to say the lawbreakers, but what do we do about all the Republican officials who enabled Trump, including Trump himself? And Cliff, first give us a quick, quick ad and then yeah. we'll jump back to that. Well, I'll just ask David quickly. David, do you like steak? I love steak. Who doesn't? There, so there you go. It's perfect for you. If you're looking for the perfect Father's Day gift for David, John, me, all sorts of folks, 
Uh, Omaha Steaks can help. What does dad really want for Father's Day? Steak. Uh, for a limited time, you can find a variety of packages filled with beautiful Omaha Steaks, plus other premium meats, side dishes, and art artisan desserts. And so, so much more. All ideal for dad's special day, these packages come flash frozen, vacuum sealed, and delivered in a cooler with dry ice safely to his door. That means fresher than fresh, all backed by Omaha Steaks unconditional 100% money back guarantee. It's a simple, delicious way to treat dad to Father's Day. If you're giving him something he will actually enjoy, Omaha Steaks is offering listeners a variety of amazing packages. Uh, they're perfect to send dad for Father's Day. Go to omahasteaks.com and enter the code quote, well, not, it's in quotes here, sorry, folks, over, oh, enter the code liberal into the search bar to unlock savings of 50% or more. With the code liberal, you'll receive free shipping and free a free one pound package. Listen to this, this is for John, of delicious Applewood smoked steak cut bacon. I can say that whole phrase again, and John literally might get out of fork and knife. Um, in select packages, there are many more packages available, perfect for dad, all ready to be shipped in time for Father's Day. OmahaSteaks.com, folks. Enter the code liberal in the search bar. All right, we're back. Ooh. Okay, so David, here is what my question really is. Um, part of what needs to be done once Trump is out of power is figuring out how we stop future Trumps from doing what he did. All the things in the system that we did not realize were basically agreement, gentlemen's agreements based on comity, right? That we all just agreed the president wouldn't tweet crazy ass conspiracy theories from Russians who work for the Kremlin like he did this morning, right? I mean, yeah. I, I mean, how do you, so that's the first question is, how do we set up better systems that stop the president from extorting the Ukrainian you know, president for his own election? But the second question I've got, which is a trickier one, and I think it's especially tricky for Biden because of who Biden is, but also what Biden will inherit if he wins, a messed up economy and a pandemic, and now the, the racial strife, should we not hold these individual men and women accountable who did this? Yeah. Um, or do we have to reconcile because that's the way you move on? Okay. I, I was, my instinct is for the people, you're going to need the broadest possible form of reconciliation. Um, and look, there are people, the Trump family is heading for a world of trouble, um, not only legal, but also financial business. Um, uh, and I think they will be plunged into the thickets after, after uh, the Trump presidency comes to an end. So many of the people around Trump were so mediocre or so dishonest that only Trump lofted them into public view. And after Trump, they will sink into the obscurity they deserve. I mean, Sebastian Gorka will be a podcaster for the rest of his life, not to disrespect hey. podcasters, but, he, <laughs> but, but, he, but he's, he's not going, he is not going to be exercising political power ever right. again. That's not going to happen. I don't think you have to worry about, I mean, about him. Um, uh, and I think some, some of the people are going to, um, are, are, are going to remain. I mean, um, you know, Bill Barr probably doesn't have uh, much of a future, but many of the people who did things during the Trump years that, uh, is Tom Cotton going to stay important? Tom Cotton is going to stay important. You have to find some way to live in the country with Tom Cotton and minimize his ability to do harm and maybe even incentivize him to be a better Tom Cotton. Um, yes, but he's not going anywhere and, and, and it would be meaningless to talk to hold them to account. What I really worry about most, and I talk about this a lot in the book, is we got in the habit of using these words 
norms uh, during the Trump years to mean the things that were not written down that we thought were rules, but when you press them, they turn out not to be rules. And I think the fate of norms, once they're broken, once people realize why there is nothing stopping the president from running a business while he's president, one of two things, I, either the norms have to be formalized into proper law um, and they have to be written down. I think that'll be, you know, that's true for the tax returns norm. That has to be turned yeah. into law. And not just for the president himself, but for the president's family. You, you know, presidents always have bad relatives. Um, but, uh, you know, there's always a Billy Carter. Uh, but, uh, but in the past, that it was small enough de- a small enough deal that we could sort of count on, and we could count on the respectability of the good brother, of the good president, to um, control the, the greedier members of the family. Uh, I think we now need to formalize this and say that any, anybody in the president's family who accepts Secret Service protection also has to disclose their, their tax returns. Uh, if you want to be, you want to vanish, you want to be a totally private citizen, great, but then you don't get the Secret Service protection, you have to keep a low profile. Um, if you want the nimbus of power and prestige that comes from Secret Service, disclose your tax returns so we can follow what you're doing. Um, other norms, I think, are going to stop being norms and are going to have to become politics and be litigated. And let me give an example of this, um, that uh, we've always had this contested, how far can Congress subpoena? And Trump has, Trump's taken the position. Um, I will comply with subpoenas from the Republican Senate, but I will not comply with subpoenas from the Democratic House. If Biden becomes president and he says, okay, I will comply with subpoenas, he's establishing a new rule. Democratic presidents comply with subpoenas whether fr- from the other party, but Republican presidents don't. Right. So you have to find some way to um, really um, in, uh, in, enforce this um, in, upon, and I think there need to be some kind of, you know, tests of political strength. Um, and that will mean, I think, for example, continuing to litigate the Mazars case. Uh, that, that This is a case about subpoenas that um, is going to the Supreme, has been argued at the Supreme Court, supposed to be heard, decided by the end of June, early July. I'm, I'm guessing the Supreme Court will try to punt it. Uh, and you have to keep at it and you have to keep litigating this thing and get a Supreme Court ruling on the subpoena power. So that is binding even on future Republican presidents and keep at it even after Trump goes and the issue seems to have become moot. Let me ask you, here's another one that I've sort of been thinking about a lot. You know, we also, we've gone through this with Nixon, we've gone through this other times, but never to this extent where you brought up Bill Barr or you've got an attorney general who literally is the president's lawyer. Um, When we had, when we had Jager Hoover you know, abuse the power of the FBI director. We wanted to make that a less political position. We give these 10-year terms, right? FBI, mm-hmm. CIA. I've often thought that that the, the attorney general needs to head in the same direction yeah. in that, you know, it's because it has to be very clear, this is not your lawyer. This is the country's yeah. lawyer because it is your secretary of state and is your secretary of treasury in the way that you pick them. So what are your yeah. thoughts on how we but can- it wouldn't stop uh, Bill Barr from being then a disaster for five, six more years. But yeah. but if his term may not have been, somebody else might've been there when Trump came in or in his term might've been up when, you know, in the middle, at least well, there's some potential yeah, yeah. check is what and I'm saying. Trump, okay. But so, Trump fired Comey too. So keep in mind, it's the 10 year term point. is meaningless. Maybe. Yeah. So, so I talk about this a lot in the Department of Justice, because that was one of the institutions that failed most signally in the Trump years. So here's my suggestion about how you would approach that. Um, 
I don't think it's in the nature of the American system that the attorney general can stop being a political appointee. Um, because remember, most of what the civil the attorney general does is oversee civil rights, uh, oversee um, commercial rules like to antitrust. Um, I mean, it definitely should be possible for a Republican president to say, I want laxer antitrust, and a Democratic president to say, I want stricter antitrust, and for them to make appointments that reflect that. It definitely should be possible for um, a Democratic president to say, I want to see much more activism from the civil rights division, and a Republican president to say, I want to protect the rights of religious people and focus less on race issues. That, those, those are, that's politics. So my suggestion is you can't do anything about the attorney general. What you can do is say the assistant attorney general for the criminal division, uh, that person should become a civil servant. Um, hmm. And that is very easy to, I mean, you can just, that's just a matter of adjusting the, the you know, the, the schedules within the civil service. In no other democracy is the head of criminal prosecution a political person. Um, the equivalent to the assistant attorney general for the criminal division in Britain is a civil servant. In Germany, a civil servant. In Germany, it's not the chancellor has no say over that person. The uh, their 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 chief prosecutor is appointed by the Minister of Justice in consultation with the President of the German Republic. And the Minister of Justice usually belongs to a different party from, from the Chancellor. The Chancellor's completely cut out of it. And if a Chancellor ever made suggestions to the Director of Public Prosecutions about who to prosecute and not to prosecute, the Chancellor would be arrested. So um, you can do this with the Assistant Attorney General for the uh, Criminal Division. I also think that the 93 U.S. attorneys um, should become uh, civil servants. Um, and, uh, but I, I think the attorney general can't be and shouldn't be because remember antitrust, civil rights, you want, that's politics. Uh, Aren't the inspectors well, general civil servants? Well, the, the inspectors general are in a very complicated position and there is not a good answer, uh, there. The inspectors general are in the executive branch. So they're appointed and I'm by sorry, the but president. real quick, and I'm not just trying to detour to inspectors general. What I'm asking is, does civil servants really solve the problem if you have a president like Trump who doesn't abide by the gentleman's agreements? Civil servants um, address the problem because it's very difficult to fire them. Um, and uh, so they, uh, look, there are cowardly time-serving civil servants, there are civil servants who are seeking appointments. You cannot make, you cannot make the system uh, bulletproof. No, right. But what you can, you can do is, uh, the, the United States allows a unique role for politics in criminal prosecution. And uh, and we have seen the consequences of that in the Trump years. And much so, David, not to give away your book, but I, I'm and I don't mean to. But who would then appoint those those ninety three? Who do you? In, in other words, you're saying the way it's done in Germany, where the other party is is part of the process. How would we do that and change the assistant the, attorney general here? So the, the, uh, you would rise through this. You would start as a prosecutor. Um, okay. And there's and and the reason it's hard again to do this is because. Um, the pay schedules, people aren't paid enough to stay long enough. I mean, there are a lot of things that, it's a tricky problem. But um, this is the reason people work in U.S. attorney's office for, they work very hard for comparatively little money, is that they think, if I do this for five years, I can then go join a law firm with enormous prestige. So, you know, we, this is this is the most vexed and boring American problem, but civil service reform, where you need to pay, you need to have better people, paid more, keep them longer, um, and then promote them through a hierarchy. And that has, not that that's a problem-free solution either. Uh, but, um, so you get, you do well in your U.S. Attorney's Office, you get to head it. You get to be the U.S. Attorney for one of the nine, there are 93 attorneys in 94 districts. And, uh, and then one of them gets 
selected by the system to be the assistant attorney general for the criminal division. And that person is appointed by the president, but serves, can only be fired for cause and serves until that person retires. I mean, I think the, that makes a lot of sense. And again, I, I think the whole point here is, as you're saying, we're just trying to make it better. There's no bulletproof. There's no perfect balance yeah. of powers in a democracy. It's sort of looking at the weaknesses that Trump has exploited and doing what we can to make yeah. them stronger. And so I, I hadn't thought about that's a really interesting. And you, and you need to bring back congressional oversight. I mean, the reason that the, the J. Edgar Hoover was such a problem was in the Hoover years, there was no oversight by Congress over the intelligence services at all. And again, this is one of the things that has been a real problem in the Trump years and I talked about is um, the, the House and Senate intelligence committees, which oversee FBI, CIA, and uh, NSC and other agencies were created in the middle 1970s in reaction to not just Watergate, but the whole related church committee and yeah. all of that. And, and, F, and FBI above all, because right. um, the FBI behavior was the worst. And one of the things that emerged was not only did Congress not know what the FBI and the CIA were doing, often the president did not know what the FBI and CIA were doing. And um, so they created these things. But the, but the agencies have never liked this oversight because they think correctly that Congress people blab. And so they're always looking for ways out. And one of the harms done in the Trump years was that Devin Nunes is the perfect, if you're a CAA person who wants not to be overseen by Congress, Devin Nunes is a godsend. Because, right? Because you can say, um, I, uh, I think we should stop, we should tell Congress less. They say, are you kidding? Remember the scandals of the 70s in the church committee? Yeah, well, remember Devin Nunes. Yeah, that's what happens when you tell Congress things. He goes and does these midnight raids. And so we need to, uh, so Congress is the, the key oversight. And Congress has to be made to work better. And I have some suggestions of that, of which the most action, the two most actionable are get rid of the filibuster and make the District of Columbia um, or the residential areas of the District of Columbia a state. So we have two more senators from urban America and two more senators who are likely to be, um, uh, at least have a fighting chance of being non-white. So you said District of Columbia, what was the other one you said? And, and, and nuke, the nuke the legislative filibuster, just get rid of it. Um, I'm with you. What do you think about, I mean, if they want to, Puerto Rico as a state? I mean, certainly the way Puerto yeah. Rico has been treated by this president I think that's less likely if you have a representative, people who are representatives who actually have any power. In I, I'm going to reveal my Canadianness here. I'm very nervous about Puerto Rico statehood. I think um, you need not to become a state. You need not majority approval, but true consensus. You do not want to import a Catalonia or Quebec problem into the United States. And my reading of Puerto Rican opinion is you got about 55% of the population who want to be a state and 45% of the population who don't. I don't think that's enough. Um, I think that's a for formula for long-term. I would agree. It has to be, a public opinion has to be overwhelming. I, I think that's a smart way to look at it, yeah. What but about- In D.C., we're all, everyone in D.C. wants to be in the United States. Right, exactly. <laughs> you guys are like the Vatican over there. <laughs> what about rescinding the memo that says the president can't be prosecuted? Um, I-, I would Clearly worry impeachment, that. okay, but impeachment's broken too now, as we saw. So yeah. what, what do we do to put some kind of checks and balances back on the president? Um, I think that the, we're going to have to do that by making the, pre by, um, uh, I, I think the, the president, we are going to have to just learn our lesson from the Trump years. The problem is, if um, we have two problems. If you make the president indictable and you keep the present system of prosecution, then the president is being indicted by his own appointees. And that's, futile. If you go in the way I want to, which is to make the 
um, uh, prosecutors less political, then you, are then you are resurrecting a J. Edgar Hoover problem because then you have people who are not accountable immediately to any political person who have the power of criminal prosecution of the president. And, um, uh, and I, so I, I think um, the rule that the president can't be prosecuted um, during the president's service is uh, broken. Um, and the good news is, from this point of view, that American criminal laws are now so draconian that there are very few important laws that have statutes of limitation as short as four years. Uh, so that once the president is out, there's plenty of, if the president has committed tax fraud, um, has done other, other things wrong, um, then, uh, then you can prosecute the president afterward, but only for unofficial acts. I mean, the, the, the idea that the president could, and one of the things, one of the things that Trump Can we be really very abused, clear then? Go ahead. Let me let you finish. And then I want to ask something. Sorry. Trump, Trump is abuse. Uh, one of the changes I didn't write this in the book was I didn't think about this enough while I was working on it. Um, is Trump tweets from the real Donald Trump account rather than the POTUS of the White House account. Uh, the president has a very large immunity against libel action for anything he does or says, anything he says in the context of his official duties. Um, is the real Donald Trump account in the context of the president's official duties? And I, I think, I, I don't write this in the book because I didn't think about this till after, that Twitter should say to Donald Trump, you know what, We're not, we don't want to police your speech at all, obviously. But we're closing the real Donald Trump account. Right. He, it should be That's the POTUS it. account that Obama had. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You you yeah. tweet as president. Then we're very clear. Uh, no one can sue you for defamation. Right. You have your. But then you're subject to the Presidential Records Act. You know. You're subject to uh, uh, oversight by Congress. You get the immunity of the presidency with the responsibilities of the presidency. You don't get to be in this gray zone where we don't know whether who's talking. Right. Uh, the other thing I was going to say is I would think I would hope because this is unclear and we know Donald Trump drives right through those loopholes um, is to make it quite clear that a president can't pardon themselves might be yes. one of these changes we might want to look into. Because, again, when you're talking about them being prosecuted after office, yeah. that's a problem if the guy's just going to pardon himself. Forever. But that's constitutional that's interpretation, isn't it? Is there there's nothing we can do other than the courts? Well, we can just right have, we can develop a pre-existing intellectual consensus just okay. as. If, whether the president can be indicted or not, that's not, you know, that's just people following the logic of the Constitution. It's not written down anywhere. As, and as Cliff said, it's just a memo. But it sort of follows logically that the system wouldn't allow it. Well, in the same way, it should follow logically. The point to the pardon power is to create, you know, we all understand. I mean, anyone who's been a lawyer, it's a very blunt instrument. I mean, I keep, I keep warning friends of mine who have anything to do with it, that people hmm. go to court looking for justice and all they ever find there is law. Um, and uh, so because of the imperfections of law, you, you want there to be some point in the system where somebody can say, you know, this was just wrong. This, this, you know, and yeah, this person was convicted, did it, was guilty, was convicted properly, but it just doesn't feel like justice what happened here. So right. you need a safety valve, but no one can do that for themselves. And so we just need a, a, an intellectual consensus Self-pardon? No. Hey, I've got a crazy question for both of you. Um, why did Nixon need to be pardoned at all? Granted, breaking into a building isn't necessarily, you know, a presidential act, but who decides what is and isn't a presidential act in terms of what the president's, you know what I mean? Like Nixon had tax fraud problems. Uh, Nixon had um, okay. taken um, some deductions on his personal papers. Oh, you're kidding. So they like, they got him on the... 
What was it? El the Al Capone. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it was it was it was pending, and it was it was one of those things that was unclear, and it wasn't that he'd broken the law exactly, but he had taken a very very aggressive position on a tax deduction. So it wasn't Watergate itself that he was pardoned for. Um, it, it, he was pardoned for for Gates for everything, death, for everything, just well, any correct. federal offense I, you may have yes. committed. Yes. and we're just going to because there was this longstanding. And just to give you an idea of why Ford did the right thing. So it's 2020, and we still do not know whether Nixon ordered the Watergate break room or not. Hmm. Um, all the memoirs have been published, all the historical documents, and we don't know whether he did it or not. So the idea that we would have achieved anything in 1975 by prosecuting Nixon for ordering the break-in. Um, he did obstruct justice. That's, that's, uh, you know, that's what he was impeached and removed for. But... Um, you sort of for, for obstruction of you want to send him to prison too. I, you know, right. Uh, so well, at least Nixon to... again had got there was a punishment there. He was going to be impeached, and so he left. And so it's so it's it's different than where Trump. I mean, I guess you could call the fact that Trump was impeached, if not convicted, you know, a punishment. But it, it still feels like obviously a lot more is needed. It it, it needs to be pending, and I think that the, what what is going to the, the the punishment that needs to come for him is um, when this, that we don't relent on the, um, indict, uh, the, the subpoenas for his tax records and that um, the very strong evidence that he committed tax fraud and bank fraud and multiple other frauds, um, a lot of things that he got away with because, um, you know, he's, uh, because of the de deficiencies of the state of New York, that now that he, now they're so public that he's created situations where they can't be ignored and that those will catch up with him. Okay, David, we've got to do another quick ad break, but I'm going to leave this dangling uh, after the ad. A dangling Chad, if you will. A dangling Chad, a dangling John. Um, should Biden pardon Trump? But don't answer yet. First, we've got a quick ad from the clean phone. Uh, the clean phone <laughs> pro, excuse me. Now more than ever, we're all thinking about our hygiene. We're washing our hands and sneezing into our arms, but we are still taking a huge carrier of virus with us everywhere. Phones are a vector for disease and we rarely clean them. We are constantly touching our phones with our hands and even pressing them to our face. It's time to take cleaning your phone seriously. The Clean Phone Pro sanitizes using medically proven UV light technology to kill 99.99% of all bacteria that comes in contact with your phone. Better than wipes and safe for your device, the Clean Phone Pro gets every inch of your phone clean with nine high power UVC lights. Dedicated wireless charging pad on top of the chamber means you can be sanitizing other items while wirelessly charging your phone on top or just use the Clean Phone Pro as your go-to charging station at any time. It also has a fully removable top, which means it's easier to fit more items and larger items inside than just your phone. Go to thecleanphone.com, <clears throat> excuse me, today and get one for just $89 in free shipping. Be sure to use the code SEXYLIBERAL, one word. If you're serious about hygiene, it's time to get serious about cleaning your phone. Go to thecleanphone.com and keep your phone truly clean. Remember to use the code SEXYLIBERAL. You should get two-day free shipping, and it should ship immediately. <clears throat> That's thecleanphone.com, thecleanphone.com. And I want to do any more ads because my allergies are going crazy. <clears throat> David, should yeah. Joe Biden pardon Donald Trump? No pardon without remorse. Interesting. What Define remorse in this case. What, would, yeah. what shape well, would remorse take? Well, what, what, what normally has happened in when the, when presidents have used their pardon power personally, and by the way, remember, most presidential pardons are not personal. There's actually a bureaucracy inside the White House that, that exists to look for cases where someone's been punished disproportionately or they've, they've really 
Uh, but the, the classic case is somebody did something bad, but, um, but in prison, they have demonstrated that they really are a new person. Um, they, they've taken on board what they've done. Um, they've, they've, they've shown remorse. Um, they've got a 20, they've got 10 years of a 20 years prison sentence um, to serve. And you want to say, you know, the person who did that, that person's gone. And we now have this new and much better person. And, you know, so the, the pardon process is, is mercy that is connected to um, some sense of, of uh, some sense of, of, of the excessiveness of formal law. And uh, so, you know, I think one of the, the, the background to Ford's pardon to Nixon was Nixon in August of 74 was a visibly destroyed human being. And what, you know, whatever he'd done, and even if he wasn't exactly sorry about it, you could just see that he had, so it had worked on him, that he had become a different person and it was going to put the country through a trauma. Um, in Donald Trump's case, um, you know, he, you just, you would be just rewarding impunity and you would be in a situation like, as happened with Michael Flynn, where um, Flynn professed remorse, promised to cooperate with law enforcement, got his deal, and then broke his word. The reason I ask is, and I'm devil's advocate, so I'm going to take you off spotlight here. The reason I ask here, and I'm devil's advocating is, if a, well, I guess you can't, okay, you can't uh, pardon state crimes anyway. Right. So that, because I was going to say, if the states go after Trump, you are going to have the problem of the country not coming together. Right. We try to go after Trump and hold him accountable or any of the people surrounding him. And that 30 percent is going to be in the streets and it's not going to be Black Lives Matter. They're going to be destroying everything. (laughs) You know, these guys are nuts. Um, But 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 I I don't worry. But I mean, I think. But the things. Go on. Yeah. The things he's in legal jeopardy for at the state level are things he did before he became president. Right. uh, uh, They can't be pardoned anyway for it. So. Yeah. ProPublica had this, yeah, the president can't do it, but ProPublica had, did this really interesting piece of research where they got hold, they were able to get hold of some rent rolls of some of Trump's buildings, and they were able to get hold of some bank statements, and uh, some tax statements. And they were, to sh- they were able to show that the rental income that Trump had declared to his bank was different from the rental income he had declared to the state. I remember that, yeah. And, and right. which leads to the conclusion, he either lied to the bank or he lied to the state or possibly both. And, and there's really, it's, I mean, I, I, a well-paid lawyer can, can perhaps devise an innocent explanation for those errors, but what it looks a lot like is tax fraud, bank fraud, or both. And, uh, but a private citizen and his corporation, I, 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 that's not something um, that the president can do. It's not something the president should do. Um, you know, it, it, it's a little bit like what happened, you know, maybe the, the most relevant precedent here, or the most immediate is Clinton versus Paula Jones, is... After Clinton left the presidency, he admitted that uh, he had lied to the court in the Paula Jones. Remember, Paula Jones originally sued Clinton for sexual harassment. That's how all of this started. Um, And it looks like that was all true. He really did sexually harass her um, when he was governor, not president. And then he lied to the court about it. Um, And he was disbarred. Uh, He he suffered a sanction and he paid nearly a million dollar fine. And... Uh, I don't think anyone who defended him during the impeachment thinks it's wrong that he was disbarred, that he paid a million dollar fine for lying to the court about the course of a civil sexual harassment case where he was almost certainly guilty. I guess what I'm saying, and I'm, again, I'm not arguing that Trump should be pardoned even by state governors, but what worries me is what comes next. State governor or state uh, state's attorney general try to hold Trump accountable for his crimes even if their crime is not related to the presidency. And that 30% in, 
including Fox News, yeah. is going to go batshit crazy. And we're back well, to where we are now. I mean, how do you bring people together, but at the same time, hold people accountable? I said, my concern is to bring them together to the extent you can and minimize their ability to, to do harm to the extent that you cannot bring them together. So um, I think you have to be realistic about this, that uh, you will reconcile um, of Trump's 42%, um, you will reconcile some, but there will be a hardcore, profoundly alienated people. And, and there it's important to minimize their ability to do harm. And part of that is by saying, um, Trump is not going to continue, is not going to have impunity. Um, and I, remember I said earlier, I talked about how norms once broken, you either have to turn, you either have to let them go or turn them into law. Uh, and so the, the, the norms Trump broke, you know, we're, we're going to be, some of them are, are we're going to make new laws, but in other cases, we're going to say, you know what, Democrats may have to play this game as rough as Republicans. Um, and so I have a suggestion in the book about what you do about um, gerrymandering at the state level, which is assuming Democrats do well in 2020 and assuming, uh, and there is of course a census in 2020, so there'll be a redistricting 2021. Uh, I think it's crazy that politicians draw their own boundaries. And again, that doesn't happen in other democracies, but since it does, um, and given the terrible behavior of the Republicans after the census of 2010, my advice to Democrats is to, in the states that they control that are competitive states, North Carolina, for example, that they, they produce two maps and say, here's the fair map, here's the harsh map. If we do that, we're prepared to do the fair map in North Carolina, if you folks will do the fair map in Texas. Um, if you do your map in Texas, we'll do our map in North Carolina and try to restore some kind of deterrence uh, in in the la in the absence of depoliticizing the drawing of boundaries, which is the ideal solution, but impossible. Hmm. Sort of uh, mutually assured destruction, in a manner of speaking. Well, well, that's what, by the way, used to happen before two thousand and ten. That the reason gerrymandering has become such a problem is Republicans had a huge year in two thousand and ten, won more control over state government than they had at any time since the nineteen twenties than either party had had since the nineteen twenties, um, and then proceeded to. Uh, uh, um, use that power at the same time as the Supreme Court was gutting the Voting Rights Act. Um, right. And the result was um, that you got about, um, whereas in the past, politicians were always, the National Party always warned state parties, don't go too far. Because, uh, you know, uh, while you are drawing maps here in our states, they're drawing maps in their states, and let's all be, let's observe some limits here. Um, but after 2010, Republicans, we, we, we control everything. We control more, you know, I think something like two thirds of all seats, of all the state legislative seats are Republican in the 2010s. So they went for the gusto. Here's a question. Is there anything to be done or should anything be done about the, the vast number of right-wing, young, and completely unqualified people who've been put in as judges in various courts? Or is this just something you think we have to live with? Oh, I, there's an easy solution to that and a good one, um, which is the Supreme Court is a different matter. But the appellate, I don't write, I, did, I unfortunately did not talk about this in the book because I was trying to keep it under a certain length. But the fact is there are not nearly enough appellate judges as it is. Um, so I think there is no case against making the appellate courts 30% bigger. Um, and uh, there's, there's, there's absolutely work for them to do. Um, and... Uh, and th th these are the federal courts, of course. State courts mm -hmm. raise a different problem, and this is something that is not a topic of Trumpocalypse, but is a cause dear to my heart, which is, again, electing judges, that's crazy. 
That should nobody else does that. That shouldn't happen. Um, and states should try to move away from that. But that's not a national matter, unfortunately. But it is it's an insane system. I've never understood. I mean, growing up in New York City, we elected a number of judges there. Um, and now I live in Ohio, where we literally elect the Supreme Court, which is just utterly insane to me. So, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, it, it makes no sense. Yeah, it just I mean, in any case, um, how are judicial races? How are judicial races paid? For? Well, the, the one question to anyone who is skeptical of this, I say, who is going to give money to re- elect or defeat a judge? Right. Only people with, with business before the judge. No, <laughs> right. nor, no right. person who's concerned for good government is ever going to say, you know, I really am concerned about the Court of Appeals here in Ohio and making sure that, you know, so it's yeah. either going, and especially in the breakdown, that the system made sense in, a day of, in, in the days of stronger parties, where you say, you know what? The Democratic Party has picked nine judges. The Republican Party has picked nine judges. The Democratic Party, out of its Democratic war chest, is paying for its judges. The Republicans for theirs. Right. And the judge and the judges can then just be judges. And anyway, it's more about patronage than it is about ideology, anyway. But that's not where we are now. We're in a, where these people are all freelancers. They all have to raise their own money, and of course, they raise it from the lawyers who argue in front of them, and that is, or the corporations who are sued before them. And that's that. Just is it's inherently on. Um, a problem. Yeah, we have this, I'll say quickly, uh, we have this ridiculous rule here where the, those running for office can't actually ask for the money as if that solves the problem. So they just have an aid call. And yeah. you know what I mean? Like, so it's like their campaign manager has to do a lot more fundraising, but like they know who gave the money. It's ludicrous. Yes. You know, and it doesn't yes. solve anything. Yes. Um, so John, what do you got, my friend? I mean, we're about to hit the hour mark here. I think we are hitting it. So we can, we can set you free in a minute, David, but um, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm still very concerned. I mean, obviously, we're all still very concerned, but I'm still very concerned about sort of culturally where we are. I just don't see how we bring the country together without it being what always seems to happen, which is the Democrat is supposed to come in and be the good guy, right? We're the ones that's not supposed to break all the rules, and we're the one that's supposed to have the, you know, yeah, the Republican VP or whatever, you know, the never Trumpers in the cabinet, whatever the idea is, but to try to reach across the aisle and the next guy that comes in still learned Donald Trump's lesson, which is you can be a total jackass, break all the laws, but as long as you scare the hell out of Congress, they'll let you do it. And the voters, the Republican voters will, you know, applaud you all the way. I guess I, I don't understand how do we set up an incentive so that the next Donald Trump, who's even smarter than Donald Trump, Cliff yeah. and I talk about this all the time, doesn't get elected and do even worse because Republican voters and the party say, yeah, we pulled it off once. Let's do it again with the smart guy next time. Well, let me end with this conversation. This is the hope that ends both of these books, Hmm. which is that I am hopeful. And I think there's some evidence for this. I won't predict it, but I think that the effect of the Trump presidency has been to um, open one of those moments of American moral reform that you get at roughly half century intervals. And the last one we had was really the 1970s, um, where we changed, um, you know, we, we have practical political institutional changes, but we also have a new spirit about things that are acceptable and not acceptable. And I, I think, you know, the first round of this was the Me Too movement. And the second now is this second wave, Black Lives Matter, I guess, had its first wave in 2014. But now um, it's become a much broader kind of movement. And you see this when you go to the demos. I mean, this is now, you know, um, the, the face of America. It's, yep. it's multiracial, it's multi-generational, it's very middle class. 
Um, it's to the distress of some, it's, decre it's a decreasingly radical movement. That's why the whole, de Biden just edited out the defund the police part from the beginning without cost to him. Um, and the people who say defund the police, say, well, we don't mean defund the police. We mean the following 17 point program. Said, well, if you didn't mean it, <laughs> I know we've talked. We've about, already had this conversation on this show, this. which is <laughs> about branding and about you don't use. If you have to explain that what your meaning is is the opposite of the word that you're using, <laughs> then it's yeah. probably yeah. not the words you want to yeah. use. But but we are living through. I think I think one of the things that Trump did, and this is this is maybe the most hopeful thing we can say, is you know human life it's it's um, full of petty cruelties, and most of us. Um, become inured to those cruelties as just part of life. And especially if we're on the easy side of the cruelty, if you're a man reviewing the, the cruelties that are inflicted on women, if you're white looking at the cruelties that are inflicted on blacks, if you're rich looking at the, you know what, that's just, we just have to take, you people just have to take this all in stride. Can't you take a joke? And what Donald Trump did was he took cruelties and it was the fact he, met, he put them on the jumbotron in Times Square. He's the president, and he's mocking a man who was pushed to the ground by the police and bled from his head. And you can't now not see it or not think about it. You have to. It's unignorable. And once you can't ignore it, most of us will want to do something about it. Not everybody, but enough. And that, and not necessarily with law. We just change our culture. And and as as we said, I mean, this is. I am just struck again and again through the events of 2020. How much gentler a society. United States of 2020 is than the United States of 1970, how much less acceptable violence is. And maybe it's the cameras, maybe, who knows, but, um, you know, uh, you know, we're more tolerant, uh, we're more sexually egalitarian, um, we're more easygoing in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, that it- More uh, Canadian. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe that's it, all the Canadians have come here. <laughs> um, I think Brian some, Adams, uh, David Frum. I mean, yeah. if you think about it, I don't know. It. I don't know. But there's less Southern is another way to put it. Less Southern. Maybe that's maybe what it is is the Civil War is slowly, slowly, slowly coming to an end. And uh, I sometimes think about this with, with um, the monuments that the price of reconciliation after the Civil War um, was to give the South its due, its moral due, you know, but in a lot of symbolic ways. And you say, you know what, um, civil war's over, you lost, we're not doing it your way, slavery's abolished, and the slave owners have lost a lot of money. <laughs> but, but I'll tell you what, if you want to believe that your generals were braver than our generals, you're free to do so. If you want to believe that your fighting men were uniquely noble, you're free to do so. You believe that. And that was how the peace after the Civil War was built between 1890 and 1920. And David Blight at Yale has a great book about this called Race and Reconciliation, which I recommend. And I think we're doing, okay, we turn out, well, there was another part of the Civil War. There were people who got sacrificed. That re reconciliation between 1890 and 1920 was done at the expense of the black population, then of the South, later of the whole country. So isn't it the book where he begins with Woodrow Wilson and the 50-year? Right. I read it. I had to read it for my history. Yeah, yeah. So what where he starts, and Woodrow Wilson, of course, was as racist as they came, and, and it was sort of the acting as if there was nobility in, in, what it, in the great lost cause. Yeah. Right. And that, so that was the deal, right? We said, you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln was right and Jefferson Davis was wrong, but Robert E. Lee was more of a hero than Ulysses S. Grant. And that was 
to put it vulgarly, that was going to be the, it was as Lincoln and Lee would become the two heroes of the Civil War. Um, and that was how reconciliation was purchased. Um, so the Civil War, we're not done with it. And maybe ne we never will be, but the, the, it is a gentler country. And, and I think that that kind of social reform coming, that, that kind of moral culture reform, you know, like pro, ab, the abolition movement, like the temperance movement, um, like women's suffrage. And we, America gets these things at intervals. Um, the American conscience revives and demands change. Um, and I, we may be living through that now. And some of it will be expressed through formal law, through changes in the procedures of Congress. But some of it may just be the way, you know, spend time with today's 20-somethings. So they, are, they are gentler people than their parents yeah. and grandparents were. I think I'll just say quickly that, that you know, it used to be we had these divisions. You could certainly tell them here in Ohio, other places where you were proud to be from the Union and, or you were proud to be from the Confederacy. And it really was a regional division based, you know, if you're based upon which party you supported and, and ideology. Yeah. And Fox and talk radio, other outlets, much people moving around certainly much more sort of led to rural areas in the north becoming more like the south. But the opposite side of that coin is Atlanta and its suburbs and, you know, uh, New Orleans and its suburbs and you know, cities in Florida becoming more northern in terms of their views on mm -hmm. issues like race. And I think for a while that we were, because the electoral college and whatever, you know, we were on the, the, the losing side of that. But I think what you're saying, which is important, is that those are the areas that are growing now. It's yeah. the Atlantas and their suburbs. It's the Tampa Bays and their suburbs. It's places, it, it, the rural areas are shrinking. And I think maybe that has a lot to do with it. Yeah. You know, the, the ending of the Southern kind of dominance, so to speak, culturally. And so we're, we're never finished building this country. Um, and we're never finished building the democratic project, which now extends beyond the United States. Um, and, um, and that's maybe the next challenge is that we have to, you know, um, and th this is my old neocon hat, but um, the project of building a global democratic future, um, that still beckons. And Trump, Trump was a detour. Um, and maybe now we can get back on the main highway. Well, it's probably a good way of uh, summing it up, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. Still, what, a, what a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for being here, David. John, where are you? Wait, I was muted, David. One quick thing. Yeah. Wait, I was yes. going to ask you one thing, and I didn't realize I muted myself when I was coughing. I, I was going to say, as a Canadian, why the hell did you want to become an American? You're, well, I, you're, I, like, I, the most, you're like the most pro-American guy I know. And for most of us, we look at Canada and kind of pine for it. Well, so that's a you whole lot. Said, the niceness and that kind of, there's this image, and I realize it's stereotypical, but it, it's intriguing to me. Yeah. Well, look, can Canada, discussion, but this is a whole other discussion. Canada's had its history of political extremism too. Let's not forget that, especially at the provincial level. Um, but I would, I would say, I think being Canadian has influenced a lot of my reaction to Donald Trump. I, my life was shaped by the protection of the world system, the United States built after World War II. And being a beneficiary of that, you see it more clearly maybe than the people who you know, we're aware both of the, of the costs as well as the benefits. And so when Donald Trump began attacking NATO and free trade and the transatlantic partnership, I mean, those, from, from a lot of people, those seemed like abstractions compared to him being, you know, an insulting jerk and a racist and a bully and a misogynist. But in a, for me, I mean, that was, those are the fundaments of my life. Those are the things that made my life possible. Um, and they are 
precious to me. And they were America's gift to the world after World War II, imperfectly with lots of hypocrisies and gaps. Um, but it was the things, the system that was built after 1945 with its hypocrisies and gaps, I think is the greatest thing that the human race has ever done in terms of government. Um, and Well, the culture that it created, a, a pro-democratic uh, culture, one where we work together in various international institutions. I mean, absolutely, I would agree with that. I quote in, in Trumpocalypse, I talk about, uh, as I said, I've been obsessed with the history of West Germany after World War II. I talk, I quote Conrad Adenauer talking about how never in history had a victorious power reached out its hand to the defeated as the United States did to Germany after World War II. And again, with many hypocrisies and blind spots, um, and in a way that in 1955, people would question, are we really doing the right thing? From the perspective of today, we clearly did the right thing. And it's a better world. And um, it's a world I'm happy to live in. And it's a world that Donald Trump was determined to attack. And after he's gone, we can go back to restoring it, refurbishing it, making it new again. All right, good. Thank Sounds you. like a plan. Good answer. All right, guys, thank <laughs> you. Uh, thank you for the attention to the book. I'm really grateful to you. No, that's great. Uh, of course. Trump apocalypse and available, yeah, flash it and available everywhere. Right, and and all upside down like the Bible. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Scary one, the reassuring one. Trumpocracy <laughs> and Trumpocalypse. Read one yeah. when you wake up in the morning, the other before you go to sleep at night. <laughs> exactly. All right. Bye. Bye, David. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Thanks for being here. Trying to see. There we go. Trying to see how to get rid of David. Remove. Um, yeah, I had muted myself for my cough, and then I was sitting here going, hey, I honestly, I was like, I thought you ditched us. I was like, all right. I was like, David, don't leave. I've got one last question. Um, anyway, very interesting, as always. Um, yeah. I don't know what else. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess that I, I don't know, whatever. I mean, I'm tired now. I mean, I, the one, only thing I was going to talk about, David brought up, which is again, uh, Trump uh, tweeting out the conspiracy and all that, attacking the man, the uh, 75 year old man who was pushed over. Right. Uh, just when, you know, nothing new. There's no floor. When you, whenever you think it can't get worse, it does. And you saw, I don't know if you got to see the details. So <clears throat> the reporter at the reporter, haha, at OAN, my own initiative. <laughs> TV network, the far right network that's far to the right of Fox, that Trump now calls on that woman who always does the, you know, the sycophantic questions at the- The one that when Trump loses, he's going to try to buy and take over and, and yeah. brand as his own. Yes. Yeah. So that's, so, so the reporter today who does the story that Trump is quoting, claiming the poor 75-year-old man that got pushed over by the cops, was it Buffalo, maybe? Yes, uh, it was Buffalo. Full over, and then starts bleeding, you know, and you're literally watching- From his, his ear. From yeah. his ear, and you, if, if there's a small point too, if you look at the video, you see he's on the ground on his back, and he's he's like holding his phone in the air, and or not in the air, but off, and all of a sudden you see the phone go down, like he's totally lost any. I thought he control. may have died when I watched it. I mean, it was horrible. Oh, it's because you can see that he's lost all control of his body at that point. You think he died? Well, when you fall, people, I'll just say quickly, you hit your head on the pavement, a, a full shot in oh. the pavement, falling back. Oh. You can easily die die I mean, oh god internal you know, brain yeah. hemorrhage and internal bleeding okay okay go ahead yeah so that story i'm watching the story this morning then uh matt gertz of course who else but from media matters <laughs> we've had on the show matt posts the video from oan of the reporter talking about this that trump got the whole story from i'm hearing the reporter and you listen to it first of all he sounds like one of those auto-generated david hawking voices david hawking stephen hawking voices so you're kind of going you know, who is this guy talking like this? It sounds fake. Then I notice a Russian accent and I'm thinking, no way. Well, Matt tweets, he's a Russian national working for OAN 
And he also works for Sputnik, the Kremlin state. No collusion. The no collusion. It is Sputnik, for those of you who don't know, is the English language anti-American Kremlin propaganda organ that is sole purpose well, to attack not the United the, one of one of at least two that I know of. Yes, Sputnik no, but is yes. much more. Yeah, Sputnik and uh, RT. RT Russia. Sputnik today. in the past was more radio. Are they still just radio? I think uh, they do a lot of web too. Uh, obviously, uh, web yeah, they do a lot of web and, too. Uh, and RT um, is their video asset. They went after me in 2016. I was like very proud. As who? Which one? Uh, Sputnik. They did a whole article about me. They were pissed. I forgot why. Probably something Hillary-ish or something. They were pissed. They just sent me something um, asking me to be on the show, and I was like, oh, I tried to decide if I'd answer. Sputnik. I was trying to decide oh. if I'd answer by laughing at them or just, uh, or, or you know, I just like no. I, I handled it like a professional. They're going to send you a no, virus thank. next. Be careful. Okay. <laughs> I was like, no, thank. Yeah, I was like, I don't want to touch anything here. I just like, no, thank you. Best of luck. God. No, there. So that's the thing. That the thing. This is this is multiple level important. So Donald Trump took a bullshit story created by a Russian who works for the Kremlin Ministry of Propaganda. That's the first thing. Yes. And Donald Trump's favorite new news station is the is one that hiring, employs this person. Is hiring people who work for the Russian government propaganda ministry. I mean, in the old days, this would have never happened. This would never happen right. in the old days. Republicans wouldn't hire people like this. Somebody with ties to the president would never hire people like this. And no. now it's and, totally and more so than that, if they yeah. even did it because they screwed up and didn't check the resume properly the scandal would be enormous. Yeah, imagine. And and Trump, the scandal of Trump. Imagine, oh, again, oh, we always bring this up. Obama. Wait, Obama, mean, Obama took a story that the Russians created, basically. Even, you know, take Obama out of it, even, because so much of that was race. Clinton God. or Carter or any yeah. Democrat yeah. had done something of that nature. Like, that would be the Republican, what they would run on. Yeah. They'd have yeah. images of, of hammers and sickles. Yeah. And, you know, the, I mean, literally, that would be their campaign. Yeah. A it's literal incredible. Russian spoon-fed Donald Trump disinformation, and he broadcast it to 80 million Americans. And that's why all of the, the people, whether on the right or that contingent of crazy leftists, uh, you know, Mate and Greenwald and all them, that, that right. sit there and try to tell you what your eyes haven't seen, what they've seen, which is, there was no conspiracy in terms of breaking a law that Mueller was able to prove. Yep. There was collusion up, out, and through the wazoo. And this is just another example of ways that they have found to work together, you know, right out in public, right. in your face, to spread propaganda right. and try to reelect in this case. Just so you know, your, last your, time. Connection, your connection's awful again, just so you know. We can hear you. Yeah, well, I'm down to... I'm down to twenty percent at this point on my oh. phone, so it may be that we're that I'm on my phone. It's, it's just your voice. Yeah, actually, your voice sounds good, but your mouth is like not more. We're like <laughs> doing. Is it like one of those old kung fu movies where I'm like, oh, I, it's I'm very bad, happy. It's, it's, it's it's hey, watch it. You're not gonna. I you're gonna true. is that is that racist? Watch it. I, I apologize, folks. It was more. I actually love those old kung fu movies too, but I guess I got to keep my watch mind about it. me that that can be considered racist. I exactly. apologize. Bad lip syncing would be my better example. It, that's what I was going for. I wasn't going for the race of it. I was just going for the. All kung right, fu movies, you're which, gonna lose uh, your editorial job. Um, anything else? I'm just trying. I mean, we're done. We've got a, a good a good hour twenty. I'm trying to think. Is there anything else big that we should hit on really quick before leaving? Not. I don't think so. Again, that was the only other thing that I could think on. That I mean, think of the only other thing that might be worth mentioning is you know there's a really interesting piece by hmm. Philip Bump, one of the ones in, in the Washington Post, huh? Um, just about how enduring 
uh, and the lead is uh, Iron Blake by Biden over, and Harry Enten did something too, over oh, really? uh, Trump. Trump. It's, it's just worth really? checking out the fact that it, this is, people keep saying, oh, we're just like Hillary, and it's, it's not. That his lead is larger. The bigger deal is that he is now, his, his average of all of his polls have him at 49.9%. Hillary, the thing is, is that she never got to 50. She never even got to 49. I think no poll ever had her above 48. There have been right. multiple polls that show Biden in the low to mid-50s. And the state-by-state um, state breakdown, I mean, in the key states, is good. It's, I mean, as of this moment, knock on wood, it's, it's incredible. I mean, so the only other point he brings up, Michigan poll, EPIC, Detroit Free Press, EPIC MRA poll, had Biden up 12. And that's not the, in Michigan, I'm sorry, I should say that. And that's not the first poll to show double digits or high single digits in Michigan. And right. that when people brought up that, that, there was a, there was a, you know, they got Michigan wrong. They did, but they had the average had Hillary up by three in Michigan, and she lost by less than a point. So they're okay. off by. So four. was it? So it was the but margin They're of off error. by four this time. <clears throat> Biden would still win by between four and eight points. Well, and it's still so, the margin of error if it was three points off, probably. Right. Yeah. So I mean, again, doesn't mean anybody should get arrogant about this, and anybody right. should get sort of, you know, shouldn't be out there doing everything possible to make sure this happens, but. It's not the same thing as of this moment. Hmm. It's a different thing. Oh, good. It's the only other thing I could see that is worth mentioning. I think that's about everything. Hmm. Excellent. All right. Uh, today's what, Tuesday? Okay, so we're, we're, we're back later this week with a guest, maybe without a guest. And since we're finally comfortable enough with this Zoom thing, I'm thinking next week maybe we set one up in advance and we, yeah. let, and we let the subscribers know. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. We'll I think. Out your we should probably idea. let them know. <laughs> And then, no, I mean, but that way we can do something where people come and join us and we can't have a free for all talking, but maybe people can even submit questions or I don't know if, even if we get a couple people, it would be fun, you know, but, but with people being at home, I still want to try it before everyone goes back to work because we have a better chance of people actually being available. So it'll be fun. It'll Sounds be like fun. a plan, John. And, and then I can be, and then I can be trying to deal with ads and getting questions from the chat box. Ooh la la. Sorry, that's what John, the price John pays for being the technically talented one of the two of us. Exactly. All right, then thanks, guys. This has been fun. Thanks, Claire. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. Thank you, John. <laughs>